Welcome to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. We speak with writers, thinkers, and newsmakers on the controversial issues of human life and human thriving that impact our daily lives. We are exceptional as creatures in the cosmos, as equal members of the human family, and as ethical beings. Humanize explores some of the fundamental questions. How do we thrive? How do we live well and care for what we've inherited? How do we act responsibly with one another and in the wider world? And how do we conserve the good things of this life for the future? We matter. Our actions matter. Let's get into it. I'm Wesley J. Smith, and this is Humanize. States has become the world's most adamant promoter of what is now called gender-affirming care for children and adolescents who identify as being other than their born sex. This approach ranges from social affirmation, the use of preferred pronouns, for example, and medical affirmation, such as puberty blocking, to radical surgical affirmation, meaning mastectomies, facial cosmetic procedures, and in a few cases even, genital removal and refashioning. Beginning to transition kids while they are still immature remains intensely controversial, but the increasingly woke medical establishment and Biden administration claim that gender-affirming approach is settled science and the only efficacious way to treating these children. My expert guest today says not so fast. Dr. Stephen B. Levine has co-authored an important paper that details the paucity of reliable data establishing the benefits of gender transitioning during a patient's youth, calling into significant question the current approach to caring for children with gender dysphoria. Stephen B. Levine is a psychiatrist known for his work in human sexuality, particularly sexual dysfunction and transgenderism. Levine earned his M.D. from Case Western Reserve School of Medicine and serves as a clinical professor of psychiatry there. He was co-editor for the section on sexual and gender identity disorders in the professional text, Treatments of Psychiatric Disorders. Although much of his work is written for other clinicians, Levine has also written books for a lay audience, including Solving Common Sexual Problems and Sexuality in Midlife. Levine also served on the American Psychiatric Association DSM-4 Subcommittee on Gender Identity Disorders. Stephen, welcome to Humanize. Thank you. What got you interested in the field of psychiatry? Number one, I was always interested in stories, and I, I, I've wanted to be a doctor since I was a little boy. And, uh, and But then as I got into college, uh, I be, it's very clear I was very interested in, in literature, uh, and it seemed to me the combination between literature, the story of uh, novels, short stories, and so forth, uh, the, the combination, the only way I could find, I could combine my interest in, the narr- in stories and in my interest in being a physician was psychiatry. Oh, that's very interesting. Why did you choose sexuality as your chosen field of focus? I've always been interested in sex. <laughs> And uh, it's, it's so interesting to me that all of us are interested in sex. And yet, sex is a taboo subject in medicine. 
at least it was when I graduated medical school. And when I graduated my, my residency program, uh, uh, there was me the medical school, the medical students at Case Western Reserve were clamoring to get some education in human sexuality because a paper had been studied, had been published that demonstrated that medical students knew less about, about sexuality than law students, and law students knew less about sexuality than people who were master, who had just got a BA degree. Huh. And that, that is, there was the more education, the less sexual experience people were having. And so the medical students pressured the dean to get someone to 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 develop a curriculum so the dean turned to psychiatry and psychiatry the department of psychiatry turned to this senior resident who was interested in joining the staff and uh they they put me in charge of developing a curriculum for first and second year medical students which i did and uh and then i started i i see i i, I was a assistant professor uh, one day after I graduated residency. So on July 1st, I was assistant professor of psychiatry and I knew nothing really about sex. <laughs> uh, my supervisor sent me a patient a week later and said there was an expert in human sexuality down at the university. And that was a person who said to me that two weeks ago, he was sitting underneath his oak tree. He had a gun in his mouth and he decided that he either was going to become a woman or he was going to blow his brains out. And so this man went to see my supervisor who, who'd, who'd never heard of a situation like this. He said, well, there's an expert down at the university. Go see Dr. Levine. That was my introduction to transgenderism. But in the first month of my practice uh, as an assistant professor, I had absolutely no patience on January 1st. I'm right. sorry, on, on July 1st. And by July 30th, uh, my, my schedule was full because the need for sexual, the, the, the presence of sexual concerns was so prevalent that, uh, that when, when it, word got out that there was someone interested in sex, then patients started coming. And in the course of the next three years, I think we started, some colleagues and I started um, a sexual dysfunction clinic, a marital therapy clinic, a paraphilia clinic, and a gender identity clinic. This was really breakthrough stuff then. Well, you see, in, I graduated in 1973, and in 1966, Masters of Johnson published their first book on the physiology of sex. And in 1970, they published Human Sexuality. Uh, which uh, human sexual inadequacy, uh, which was a book about their therapy, and in 1973, a woman uh, in uh, in New York, Helen Singer Kaplan, published a book called The New Sex Therapy. So I was really at the beginning of of this new wave in psychiatry because Helen Kaplan was a psychiatrist, Masters and Johnson Masters was a gynecologist. Uh, so. Uh, so I was part of the initial wave of psychologists and psychiatrists who were interested in sex therapy. There was this enormous promise that sex therapy could help people with uh, men with erection problems, which we called in those days impotence, premature ejaculation, women who couldn't have orgasm, 
uh, and women who are having pain on intercourse. Uh, so we had an enormous degree of optimism uh, beginning in the 70s. Uh, and so people like myself ran into this new arena in the hopes that we were going to wipe out sexual dysfunction. How has the field changed over your career? Oh, it, it um, well, in 1973, 1974, when we started the Case Western Reserve Gender Identity Clinic, uh, what we call in those days transsexualism was a rare thing. Right. Uh, and obviously today it's extremely common. Uh, in those days, it was mostly adults and mostly males who wanted to be women. Um, and nowadays, it's mostly uh, teenage girls who want to be uh, boys. Yeah, I'm going to get into some of the uh, potential causes of that a little bit later. But in answer to your previous question, the, the field has changed dramatically since the 70s. Sexual dysfunction was the hot topic in the 70s and in the early 80s. And then the urologists started getting in uh, uh, in the 1980s, and we developed uh, the urologist developed a vacuum pump and intracavernoso injections into the penis for erection problems, uh, and uh, and so psychiatry and and sex therapists failed to demonstrate scientifically the efficacy of sex therapy. Mm. There still are sex sex therapists. Sex therapists still believe they are really helping people, and I'm sure they are helping many couples and individuals. But we've never demonstrated with great scientific certainty that uh, these techniques uh, cre create long-lasting results. But Masters and Johnson did. They had a five-year follow-up study. That was what the 1970 book was about. And um, so. So the field has changed, and where uh, our understanding of how human beings suffer sexually has changed enormously over the uh, over the last uh, fifty years. I just gave a lecture uh, on uh, introduction to clinical sexuality for uh, Department of Psychiatry, and I listed twenty five problems that that people bring to doctors like me, uh, different kind of sexual concerns. And I stopped at 25 because it was, uh, you know, it was, I made the point there are a lot of different ways of suffering. You know, I'm old enough to remember uh, when a patient wanted what was then called a sex change, there was a long and involved process um, before and then eventually if at the end that patient still wanted it, uh, there would actually potentially be a change of, of birth certificate and, and legal uh, legal documents. Describe that early approach to treating people uh, with what is now called transgenderism. Mm -hmm. Well, in those days, it was called transsexualism. And, um, uh, and you see the difference in those names reflect that we actually might have thought we were changing someone's sex. Today, we realize you can't change someone's sex. All we were doing is, uh, in those days is reinforcing their aspired to gender and transforming their body in such a way that was in keeping with their gender. So I think today's term transgenderism is a better term than transsexualism. Uh, see, I... The old uh, the old approach would require a long term psychiatric in investigation and treatment, yeah. right? Yes. Number one, uh, 
we worried. Uh, we didn't know whether there was something called a real transsexual or true transsexual. Uh, we thought if this treatment was good, it was only good for a certain small percentage of people uh, because we recognized that there was something called a, a cross-dresser that was a, basically a heterosexual man who, got, who liked to dress up in women's clothes, sometimes it, mostly in private for masturbation, but sometimes like to present themselves publicly without sexual excitement, but just they like to present themselves publicly as a woman. And we called those in those days transvestites. And the, and the ones that were sexually excited by putting on female garments, we called fetishistic transvestites. And we thought that that was, belonged to a category of, of sexual developmental disturbances that we called paraphilias. Um, now, paraphilias... Uh, in the uh, this this concept of paraphilia causing one to present oneself as a woman uh, in the 1989 began to be known as autogynophilia, auto self gyno woman love of the self as a woman love of the self as a picture looking at the self as a woman and so that was thought to be a paraphilia and that was different from somebody who was not sexually excited by but who's a, who simply loved the idea that uh, they they would live as a woman and uh, because that was their current and previous identity even though it didn't match their body so the trouble was in the 70s and 80s, people had read the early textbooks on transsexualism. And they began, we began noticing in the late 70s that many of these men's histories were exactly what the textbook said. And then we realized, because people, can, when confronted, they confessed to us that they were telling us not they weren't telling us the truth about their background not that they didn't want to be a woman but the the, the manifestations of that that it didn't happen it, it just happened like the textbook said you see and so the idea of a true transsexual it, by the by 1980 began to disappear we didn't believe that we knew or that we could distinguish between someone who had this quote, fundamental problem of transsexualism from a transvestite. Uh, if, or I, I, I remember one patient that I saw who was a very marginal guy, very dependent on his mother, and his mother died. And he, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, he wanted to be a woman. Hmm. And, and he said he was going to kill himself unless I made him a woman. And I put him in a psychiatric hospital, and we talked about his mother's death and his identification with the lost mother. Uh, and this business disappeared. Uh, and, and he went back to being a dependent, you know, male. Um, so, so this was like an example for me of that, that people could want to be a woman for reasons other than, quote, having some genuine disorder. It was a symptomatic manifestation of something else. Mm -hmm. And see, by 1980, 1982, 1983, there weren't people talking about true transsexuals anymore. They were just talking about people who wanted to change their, their gender presentation.
Well, you, you used the term sex versus gender. What is the, real quickly, what is the difference between those two terms? Well, uh, sex has to do with, uh, at conception, uh, biology produces two forms of, of human beings and two forms of dogs and two forms of gorillas. and Male uh, and female. Yeah. Male and female. That's, yeah. that's sex. And then we have the primary sexual characteristics are our genitals, our reproductive organs in both sexes. And the secondary characteristics are, you know, getting a beard, had growing breasts, and, you know, having certain... And, and producing different gametes, uh, egg and gametes ovum versus sperm. Different, different knuckle sizes and so forth. Yeah. There are more differences between uh, men and women and boys and girls than we usually, than we usually uh, talk about. Yep. Um, anyway, so gender is the sense of self. It's an evolving sense of self. All of us have a sense of self and has many facets to it. I've listed in some of my publications 27 different facets of this sense of self. Uh, but gender identity is one aspect of the 27. Our sexual orientation, that is the class of human beings that we are romantically and sexually attracted to, uh, and, and what we want to do with our bodies, uh, what I call the intention component. So if you're a sadomasochist, that's part of your identity. You know, mm -hmm. I know I'm a, I'm a dominant submission kind of person. Mm -hmm. And so those three, those three categories, gender identity, the sense of the self as a male or a female, uh, not in, as, as my sense of myself is that I'm more like a woman or more like a man, and I live comfortably or uncomfortably in my biology, that's gender identity, orientation and intention. Those three things, that as a package, is what I call sexual identity. Um, so, um, so gender is an evolving sense of the self and your gender identity at age 60 is slight, slightly different than your gender identity at 40 and at 20 and at nine at 10. So there's an evolution in all of us as we, if we just pick on you and I, Wesley, uh, there's a difference in how we interpret maleness, mm -hmm. uh, uh, is a difference how we behave and how we think. Uh, over time and how we conceive of ourselves uh, over time. And um, so I, I remember at 15 years of, old, of age thinking how inadequate I was because I was a virgin. And, and, you know, I don't think about that way, about myself that way any longer. Not that I'm a virgin any longer, but I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of smile at what I used to believe masculinity required. You see, yeah, uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, I'd never really thought about that, but as I think about my life, uh, you know, I was, I, when I was younger, I was much more concerned about complying with a, let's say, societal view of what a man was than I am now. I'm exactly. much more comfortable in my own my own life now than I was. Yes, and and I think that's not unique to you at all, right? Uh, uh, it, just to give you a little example, I never liked beer when I was in college. And I used to worry about that. I thought there was something <laughs> wrong with me because all the other guys, in, you know, used to go out and drink beer. Right. I couldn't even finish one beer. Uh, so, But now I'm not worried about that. I like to talk about it. I like to laugh about it. But it is, has to do with what you and I are saying is that our gender identity is an evolutionary phenomenon. And we want to live long enough to see how we think differently about our gender identity. 
See, I want to. I want. I'm very curious about how I'm going to think about masculinity when I'm 130. It's just. Are I you think a transhumanist? <laughs> I don't know what I'll be. At 130. <laughs> Living I'm, to be 130. I'll be dead, but I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but the, what really has uh, seems to me changed, on, and it seems to have come upon us uh, in, in a uh, just like a, a tidal wave. A tsunami is the uh, involvement of children in this concept of transgenderism. Yes. And when, when approximately, obviously, it's always been around a little bit, but when did this become what I consider to be a moral panic or or a a a a, a just a, a a cultural phenomenon, if you will? Well, I think I think we can arbitrarily, uh, even if it's not historically one hundred percent accurate, for our purposes, we could take the turn of the century, the year uh, two thousand, mm-hmm. and at that time, children were not uh, it, in very large numbers uh, transitioning uh, at all, and and when when puberty blocking hormones began to be used for for the growing number of children, um, that probably was in the United States about 2009. But in 2014, uh, Dr. DeVries in Holland and her colleagues published a second, a second study, uh, which we called the Dutch Protocol. Um, and in, in uh, all over the world, there was what you call a tsunami. Uh, tsunami. And uh, so I think beginning in 2000, there was a slight increase. About 2010, 2009, there was an imp- uh, there was a, the curve increased more steadily. At 2014, it exploded. And I would say in 2020, uh, it, 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 we began seeing, uh, not so much, uh, we began hearing much more about college age teenagers and college age students. Uh, today, I, I don't know if I believe this or not, but, but today people quote that, um, between one out of 10 and one out of five, uh, uh, college freshmen, identify as a sexual, some form of sexual minority. So uh, that is an astounding tsunami, a change in 23 years, 20, in, 20, in two decades, there's been an enormous change. And so all prudent people ask themselves the question, why, what, why has this happened, you see? And, and what we want to do is entertain a large number of of hypotheses as explanations for this. Uh, but we don't want to settle on any particular one of them because life is, life is complicated and, and, and certain ideas facilitate the medical, uh, the, the medic, uh, the medical treatment of, of these problems. Like this has always been true. It's always been biologically uh, determined uh, that uh, gender identity, even if it manifests at age six, is fixed for life, and uh, and and the only reason there's been a tsunami uh, has been that 
we we have accepted the concept of, of a transgender identity and then children are growing up and hearing about it and and they're saying me too i'm one of them this explains all my troubles in life and and so they deny that there's any any change in the prevalence they say the prevalence is just a matter of awareness but they have no data to demonstrate that. Uh, no, no, no. But it's just it's just a self-serving hypothesis that enables uh, the the rationalization for this. This now the other thing is, uh, Wesley. Uh, I think you're quite aware of this. Uh, before two thousand, for every girl who wanted to be a boy, say that we saw clinically, uh, there were three and a half to four boys who wanted to be girls. Mm-hmm. Now today, uh, it's uh, the va- every almost every gender clinic that I've heard about has a preponderance of of teenage girls who want to be boys versus teenage boys who want to be girls. So there's been two things that have changed pretty dramatically in the last few years. One is the prevalence among youth, yes. and two is the sex that presents as wanting to be uh, identifying as the, as not their born sex. Right. Right. So we have to ask ourselves uh, what we have to, we have to speculate and we have to get cogent hypotheses. And sometimes we have to test those hypotheses to see if they're correct. I think what, what I've been noticing, and I'm, I'm a lawyer by training. I'm not a scientist. I'm certainly not a doctor, but I understand the scientific method is to come up with different hypotheses, test them, uh, use evidence to try to determine what is actually happening. But there seems to be a, a prevalence now that to say, no, we're not going to do that. We have decided that gender-affirming care is settled science, uh, and we're going to try to actually censor and prevent that kind of discussion that you were just describing. Yeah. So see, the interesting thing is that uh, people like me, uh, think the science is not settled. Yes. And yet, um, uh, we, people like me, are accused of being science deniers. Yes. Now, I can't get over this. Uh, there are two fundamental paradoxes that make my head spin. One, that I'm called a science denier when I am trying to generate, present what science knows, right? And so, I'm called a science denier. The other thing is that when I recommend to parents and to teenagers uh, that their child and they go into a therapeutic prolonged evaluation uh, like we used to do in the 70s, um, that uh, I'm called a conversion therapist. Yeah. And, and, and I, conversion therapist is a, is a bad term, you see. It's, I'm called unethical, and I'm accused of harming people by investigating the, the, the precursors to a trans identity. And, and they who take children, normal children, and give them puberty blockers and give them cross-sex hormones and take off their breasts or re- rearrange their face or rearrange their male genitals th- – they who convert people uh, project onto me that I'm a conversion therapist. Now, these two paradoxes between 
I'm a conversion therapist and I'm a science denier makes my head spin. But as, I'm a psychiatrist, you know, in psychiatry, we have this concept called projection, <laughs> where we recognize that people accuse others of things that they're guilty of, and they don't even know it. That is, it's an unconscious projection displacement of responsibility from the soul to the other. You're actually kinder than me. I think it's, I think they know it and that they're trying to win a cultural battle. And so they want to bludgeon anyone uh, who disagrees with them. That's, I'm not asking you to agree with that, but that's just as I look around and see it. Uh, and it's not just in this issue. Uh, it, it strikes me that this is a, um, I sometimes talk about the French Revolution attacking the American Revolution. It's an attempt to destroy all that came before and rebuild based on a utopian model. Uh, so let me get into something else about this. You write this, um, because the future well-being of young patients, this is in your paper, by the way, that that uh, I is how I found out about you. I read this paper. It's called Current Concerns About Gender-Affirming Therapy in Adolescence, and it was just published in the Current Sexual Health Reports. And you write, uh, because the future uh, well-being of young patients and their families is at stake, the field must stop relying on social justice arguments and return to the time-honored principles of evidence-based medicine. So it sounds to me, as I read the paper, you made a convincing case, and what we just discussed, that um, where we, and I called it ideology, that much of this field seems to be being pushed based on non-scientific investigations and and objective truth finding and fact finding but on a, a more subjective emotional or ideological basis is that what you're saying yes well see evidence-based medicine requires a kind of critical scrutiny of published works and the if it's not evidence-based medicine what is it it's fashion-based medicine. That is, because we have a tradition of, of changing people's sex from, 90, from the early 1950s on, we have a fashion of doing it. And that has been thought to be evidence because mm -hmm. it's gone before, you see. And um, so the other way of thinking of what's, of what's not evidence-based medicine is eminence-based medicine. So eminence. Eminence. So like a prominent person like Dr. Levine says the best way to take care of impotence is X, Y, or Z, you see. Mm -hmm. And the young doctors will listen because Dr. Levine, the prominent person who wrote a book on sex, you see, uh, he said it and it must be true. Well, Dr. Levine can be wrong, especially when he says this is the best because in fact, what's best for A is not best for B and was, it's not best for C. So we know that by being a doctor, that individual patients have to have individual treatments based on their, their biology, their psychology, their social circumstances, and their value systems. So, so what, that's not what's going on today, as you point out. Uh, actually, if you read me that sentence, uh, and I didn't know I wrote it, I would say, I agree with that sentence. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Uh, so you need to understand before the early 1990s, eminence-based and fashion-based medicine tradition was how things went throughout in medicine. Mm -hmm. In 1992, I think, uh, 
there was uh, the articulation of the difference between tra uh, practice as usual and practice based on science, which was called evidence-based medicine. Mm -hmm. Now, as you probably know, there's a hierarchy of trustworthiness in the nature of studies. For example, a case report is very interesting. The only thing it can do is to is to suggest a hypothesis. It never can establish a cause. It never can establish the efficacy of a treatment. But Would that be equivalent to anecdotal? Well, that's an anecdotal case report, yeah. yes. Now, on the opposite end of the hierarchy is, is uh, what we call a systematic review of all the studies, all the relevant studies in the field, where we look at the quality of the evidence in one study versus another study and so we sometimes call this a meta-analysis or, or a systematic review. Now, the thing is that we've had five recent meta, uh, systematic independent reviews of, of puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones. And each one of them independently have come to the same conclusion that the evidence is not there to support this. And so, you know, when people accuse people like me as, of being a science denier, they don't even make reference to these studies. And, and yeah, I've noticed that in the New England Journal of Medicine, for example, there was a, a, a major um, article by somebody uh, who is uh, doesn't agree with you on these issues. And not only did they they say that uh, a position other than the the writers was science denialism, but they didn't reference the fact that other countries, Great Britain, Finland, France, uh, Sweden. Norway. Uh, are, I'm sorry? And, and Norway. And Norway, right, are are actually hitting the brakes on this because precisely because the data in these studies are demonstrating that the, there's real potential for harm in terms of side effects and so forth, and no real data to demonstrate efficacy. And yet you're the science denier? Yes, exactly. Now, there's a brilliant woman in Australia. Um, named Alison Clayton, who wrote a paper, a couple papers about this issue. And she raised the question whether this is another medical misadventure. Mm -hmm. And then she, she, she's, a, she's both a psychiatrist and a his, I think a historian, and, and she, a medical historian. And, and she listed about eight different uh, medical misadventures. You know, syphilis used to be treated with giving people malaria. Really? Yeah. And the early, one of the early treatments for HIV uh, was giving people malaria. And in the 80s, uh, lots of stepfathers and fathers were accused of having sex with their child. And they didn't have sex with their child. Uh, and this is called the false memory syndrome. Yeah, I was going to say, and the McMartin uh, preschool case, I think. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and of course, we used to do lobotomies for people with, with serious uh, OCD and, and, and depression and so forth. And, but every field in medicine has, has treatments that, that were once embraced and then are now dis, the, discarded. Uh, the other thing that Dr. Clayton said that I hadn't thought about, but I think is a brilliant uh, thing that we all ought to worry about, is that the people who do affirmative care sincerely believe that they're helping people. Uh, yeah. We're not talking about, you know, 
evil people here. We're talking about people who believe this. And they convince the parents that their child will, will suffer enormously if they don't do this. And they believe that, but it isn't necessarily true. It's certainly not scientifically demonstrated, uh, but they believe it, you see. So they get parents to believe the kid believes it because the kid wants it, right? The doctors believe it, and they're all supportive of this idea. Dr. Clayton said these are the ingredients for the placebo effect. Oh, my. So, so if everyone's – so I teach a resident that when they give, a piece, when they give medicine, they should be optimistic with the patient that the, that the medicine is likely to help them. That's called a placebo effect. We use the placebo effect, you see? You know, yes. whether it's treating GERD or treating depression, we, we use the placebo effect. The patient believes the medicine can help. The medicine sometimes helps, even though scientifically it doesn't help. Does people get better? Uh, so the whole idea is that people like me are saying, listen, intuitively, you know that, that, that interfering with the ability of the body to do what it has been doing for millions of years, to go into puberty, you see, and then to have to grapple with the problems of, of 13 and 14-year-old kids when they have sexual feelings and when, when other, the opposite sex or the same sex uh, are attractive to them and everything changes in the social life. I mean, the difference between fourth grade and seventh grade, every teacher will tell you, is like day and night, right? And, and so th these are positive things and, they, and the anxiety of adolescence eventually gets better by the end of adolescence for many, many people. I remember. Right. <laughs> right. And so, so the idea that we're interfering with puberty just because a child thinks that being a member of the opposite gender would, would call, solve their problems, this, this creates this placebo effect. Everyone sort of in this system believes it, you see. But the point is what happens to these children once they're, once they're 18, once, once they're 20, when they're 25? You see, and the whole idea of, of giving kids uh, trans, transitioning children when they're young is based on the fact that uh, the Dutch people uh, in the 80s and 90s saw how poorly the adult transsexuals were doing. Mm -hmm. And so they were trying to improve a lot of these children, but they assumed that this could not change. I, I, uh, as I read your paper and as I've done some other independent research, my understanding is the idea behind this puberty blocking and cross-hormone injections and so forth is because the mental health of adult transitioners is not materially improved. Uh, and, and you make that very clear in the paper, which is, of course, a study of studies, right? Yes. Your paper. Yes. It's a study of studies. Study of studies exactly. Yeah. Um, that the idea was, well, if we prevent these patients when they're young from developing secondary sex characteristics, looking more masculine if they, if they identify as female, then they will actually present physically more like the sex that they identify with, and then we will have better mental health outcomes. Is that the idea here? That was, that was the hypothesis. And uh, your paper, uh, uh, which is a study of other studies, uh, I noticed there was 93 citations, and you you um, 
you had a very complete listing in the in the citations of the papers where to find them. You quote them. And by the way, for uh, listeners who are interested, a link to the paper will appear in the program notes so you can read Dr. Levine's co-authored paper for yourselves. Um, but you say, no, the data is not there. It doesn't demonstrate that there are going to be better outcomes. Uh, I- am I right in that? Well, I... You're, you're right from my point of view, but if you're an affirmative care doctor, you would say, no, no, you're wrong, uh, Wesley. You're, you're very wrong. We have tons of study that demonstrate the positive mental health outcomes. Uh, in fact, if you, if you uh, Google this subject, you'll come up with literally thousands of papers. And, and uh, the point is that... Um, uh, in 2021 and 2019 and 2021, there were two papers published by affirmative care advocates that that said uh, the in, in the introduction to each paper, they said that the psychological outcomes of sex reassignment surgery or gender conformative surgery were not clear. So these were advocates who said, we're going to do a study now to see if we can find evidence uh, that that mental health outcomes are improved. Now, before that time, I mean, you can you can find a thousand articles that say that that sex reassignment surgery as how we used to call that now gender conforming surgery or mastectomies improves long in, in a long-standing way it improves mental health and yet in 2019 and 2021 uh, uh, prominent researchers recognized that the answer to that question was still not clear and they did these studies you see one of the studies uh, concluded that uh, it improved mental health and because and as evidence was that people use psychiatrists less after sex reassignment surgery progressively every year after sex reassignment surgery that study results were where uh, 12 people wrote into letters to the editor. The editor of the journal, the American Journal of Psychiatry, which is a very prominent journal, the editor of or the journal, American, American Journal of Psychiatry, then took that same paper and gave it to two independent statisticians. And those statisticians came back with a report that said exactly what the 12 letters to the editor said that this the conclusions were not supported by the data and so the authors of that study retracted it and said that more research needs to be done so one of this major study uh uh that had made the wrong conclusion they set out to to prove the improvement in mental health but if you look very clearly that study showed that hormones didn't improve mental health and 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 although they thought surgery improved mental health, they didn't account for the suicides that happened after surgery. And and anyway, there's a retraction. So what I would say is the field is divided. People who do the surgery, people who recommend surgery, who refer people to surgery, people who give hormones, they believe that both hormones and surgery are safe and effective. They don't say what it's effective in. And in fact, if it's effective in anything in the short term, it's effective in pleasing the person about the results of treatment. That is, I like my new genitals. I like my new face. I like my empty chest now. 
except if the person has complications. And I cannot get over that doctors tell parents that these treatments are safe. And, and if you look at the complications rates of surgery, they're, they're 30% of people get reoperated on. And, and, and so I just think there's a, see, I think you might say there's a bunch of lying going on, but I would say the doctors do not know the evidence upon which they make their recommendations. What and, I think is there's a lot of um, social pressure going on, and I wouldn't say lying necessarily, uh, but also it's very clear, um, and I'm sure you've looked at all the papers, including the thousands you referenced, that the science is not settled. And at the very least, wouldn't that be required for an informed consent agreement to proceed to treat these children? So, Wes, uh, I don't think you're aware of this, but in March 17th of 2022, my colleagues and I published a study called Reconsidering Informed Consent mm -hmm. uh, in, transgender in the Treatment of Transgender Children, Adolescents, and Young Adults. I'm not aware of that study. All right. So, we talked about, I'm just going to repeat the first few words of that title, Reconsidering Informed Consent. because you see the advocates of transgender interventions say that they have informed consent. They insist on informed consent. But we, we looked at, at, the, uh, uh, at what doctors know and what they tell people and what they don't know, you see. And, and we think that many of the doctors uh, are just parroting what their teachers told them. That is fashion-based medicine, and and they're not critical. So in that paper, which as of yesterday had been downloaded sixty-one thousand times across the world, um, people are reconsidering what we mean by informed consent. You see, informed consent needs to be honest, yes. and it needs and it needs to state what you said that don't these parents and aren't these patients, aren't they supposed to be informed about what science knows, right? That's what, that's what you and I think informed consent is. And right? what it doesn't know. And what it doesn't know, exactly. And so this is the point that we made uh, a year ago uh, in March. And uh, I'm very heartened to say that even the apologists for affirmative care I know they've read that paper. Mm. I know they've read that paper. And you know, I never see it referenced in their arguments. Never. Yeah. Uh, see, that's yeah. not science. You you cannot just pretend with that which with which you disagree doesn't exist. Right. Because so, then it's not science. It's it's advocacy. That's right. That's right. And and you see, I think as a lawyer, you understand very clearly the difference between the scientific process and the advocacy process. Absolutely. And adv advocacy says, I'm going to win this argument. And science says, what do we know? And what yes. do we know? And, and, so, and so what it sounds like, if I can just summarize what you're saying, is that in this particular field, rather than doing the science approach, we're doing the uh, at least the predominant view is the advocacy approach. Yes. And, and you see every, every, you know, the big argument is that the American Academy of Pediatrics in 2018 recommended that the best treatment for a trans identified uh, 
a kid uh, is to socialize them in, the, in their aspired to gender. What is not said is that so many pediatricians objected to that recommendation from a small subcommittee uh, led by a guy named Rafferty uh, that in 2022, uh, that committee modified that recommendation. They never quote the modified recommendation, which is there are better approaches to this problem and psychotherapy ought to be ought to be used. What they do is they keep quoting 2018 policy, which created outrage in most pediatricians. I'm sorry, but that's profoundly dishonest. Well, here's the thing. In medicine, we know there's something called uh, uh there's a certain kind of bias where where you only select the articles that uh, that support you and right. and, and uh, confirmation bias confirmation bias thank you i couldn't think of the word and uh so that's that's exactly what's happening here uh i'm probably guilty of confirmation bias myself that is i i'm i tend to gravitate to things that's, that, that's, that are evidence-based medicine. Uh, but I'm willing to say that there is some evidence, there's certainly a lot of anecdotal evidence from clinicians that they're helping people, you see. But th those clinicians, for example, pediatric endocrinologists, they see people for a couple years, they don't know what happens to them, you see. And, and 8, 10, 12, 15 years down the line. And, and you know, we now in the last two years have three studies that begin that have begun begun to track the rate of desistance after hormonal therapy, and it's up to thirty percent. In within that's thirty percent detransitioning. No, thirty percent of people who are started on hormones within five years, in some studies within two years, and within another study within sixteen months have detransitioned from hormones. What happens to them, we don't know, you see. So what? See, before 2000, we had no idea what the rate of, of, of detransitions were. Now, probably next March will be the third annual detransition day where people around the world who have detransitioned are coming together for workshops and so forth. The number of, of people who are getting hormones and getting transition is also marked by the number of people who are detransitioning. And mm -hmm. see, uh, the, the people who call me a science denier always quote the idea there's only 1% to 2% of people who ever regret this. But if you look closely, and I think I discussed this in the paper you, you do talking about, if you look closely at how this data is, is generated, it, they're, they're not believable. Uh, I mean, not, you know, if you, if you look at the number of people graduate law school who regret going to law school, the, if you look at the number of people who practice medicine, who quit medicine, right? If you look at the people, a number of people who fell in love with someone and got married because they were perfect, and then look at their divorce rate, you can see that regret is a normal human phenomenon. And yeah. the idea that if one could change one's body, one can remove one's breasts, one can get rid of one's penis and make a vagina that doesn't work, you see? And those people don't regret? Are you kidding me? I mean, I'm a human being. I, I want to pass every, every – science has to pass through my human sensibilities, you see? Yes. And the idea that only 1% of people want to change their sex back, you see, is 
it will, they will go to a surgeon and say, well, you've changed my sex back. Uh, or go back to the original doctor who put you on hormones and says, uh, I, I don't want this anymore. All those things are not believable scientifically, you see. And so what we have, what I like to ask the advocates, and I'd say, don't you people who are giving hormones very quickly to kids, don't you have a little internal qualm about what you're doing? Don't you feel maybe this isn't the right thing? And would you do this to your 13-year-old child? You see? There's a young woman named Chloe Cole who I've seen speak and I've read uh, about her, written about her. Um, she uh, was having this gender incongruence at age 12. She says, I'm only going by what she says, that the doctors pressured her parents into transitioning, starting with social transitioning and then puberty blocking, by warning the parents that if they didn't go along with this, she would commit suicide. She said she wasn't suicidal. She had a double mastectomy at age 15. And now at age 18, she realizes, wait a minute, I am a woman, I am female, and has actually brought a lawsuit at, uh, against the doctors who um, perform these uh, surger the surgery, but but she says her life has been you know terribly harmed by the manipulation of her body while she was an adolescent and a child growing up, and and you're beginning to see more and more of that, aren't you? Yes, I I, I don't know if this is uh, has come to pass, but about a year and a half ago. Uh, there was going to be a class action lawsuit in the UK uh, involving thousands of people. Right. Right. So thousands of people who might be, uh, maybe that's an exaggeration. Maybe there are only 400 people, uh, but 400 people represents more than 1% of people who regret. And, you know, I, I don't know the numbers that are that are true, but uh, they're actually true. But I wouldn't be surprised that lots of 13 and 14 year old girls who are not transgender don't like their breasts for a while. They may not like the presence of the breasts. They may not like the size and the shape of their breasts, but they don't like their breasts. You see, and I certainly know boys who don't like their bodies. They don't feel they're masculine enough or they're too this or not enough that. Not being comfortable with a body is an adolescent phenomenon. Yeah, I remember when I was an adolescent, I didn't have chest hair and it drove me nuts where yeah. my friends did. Yeah, so you just weren't boy enough. You weren't masculine right. enough, right? And today, eh, big deal. Exactly, and I have chest hair too. <laughs> Uh, so look, the people like, uh, Chloe Cole, uh, are a symbol of a problem. And, and, um, we could, I know that she probably would get dismissed by the affirmative care is okay. So she, she's a person who didn't do well. Okay. This is only 1%, 2%. Why yeah. would you sacrifice 98% of people who are going to do well? And I say, you don't know that they're going to do well. You don't yeah. know how they're doing. And that's yeah. my major point in terms of these this paper that you're quoting. That is, you don't know the long-term outcomes. And before you enthusiastically change the gene, change the body of a person who's genomically 
scheduled by Mother Nature to go through these phases that you and I are making reference to in our own minds, in our own life experiences, you should know what happens. And that requires science to do follow-up studies. You see, everybody who has affirmative care should have a requirement to be followed for a number of years. Yes. And and the way to follow them is is that we should be following them with, with the same evaluation tools all over the world. You see, so so we we should agree that at one year, at three years, at five years, at ten years, at fifteen years, they should have be evaluated with an interview, with questionnaires, their sexual capacities should be should be explored. Uh, their 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 rates, their sexual behaviors, uh, their their sterility, uh, their marriage rates, their mental health parameters and mental health need to be measured. You see, and and when they're lost to follow up, there needs to be an effort to find them to find out whether they're alive or not. So I want I want to just give you one little example of a male that I took care of who became a woman with uh, that is who took hormones and while in college met a woman and began to have sexual intercourse with this woman and even though he was presenting himself as a, a as a woman began to admit to both to his parents and to his girlfriend it wasn't so bad being a man <laughs> Unfortunately, that person died of a heroin fentanyl overdose hmm. in college. So I worry about this because you see, one of the things that we need to recognize is that compared to cis people, sexual minority people have a higher rate of substance abuse. Yes. And substance abuse is one of the precursors of suicide and yes. accidental death yes so there has been a published study uh, in the in jama in january of this year out of uk that calculated the death rates of trans people versus cis people so c uh, cis and what does that mean that means uh, sort of heterosexual ordinary people right non-gender non-transsexual people and there was a uh, the odds ratio of death for 36-year-old people if they were trans was 1.34 greater than for cis. That's about a 30% increase, 34% increase in the death rates in young people in their 30s. Mm -hmm. See, so when you think about the consequences of of of, of uh, putting people trans uh, affirmative care, we need to I. Uh, it sounds like I'm, I'm trying to scare everybody, Earl, but what I'm saying is the medical facts, this paper is the third paper that I know of that has demonstrated an element, actually, it's probably the fifth paper I know about that, that it has demonstrated an elevated mortality among trans people. And, and a lot of these uh, children, as I read your paper and I've read some others, They've actually had prior mental health issues diagnosed before they got into this aspect of, of care. Isn't that right? That's right. It's, and it's been as high as 70%. So, and I know that uh, in, in the UK, there was a scandal that a lot of autistic children 
were actually being kind of promoted into thinking that they uh, were a different sex? Well, I, I don't think you should use the word promoted. Uh, I think what we know is that studies on three continents have demonstrated the same study, the same thing. That is, uh, in trans communities, the presence of autism, the prevalence of autism is sevenfold the prevalence of autism in the general population. So it, it, being autistic somehow predisposes kids to want to change, want to escape them, their selves and, and try a new form of self because the autistic self is a suffering self. For yes, the yes. Right? It's not that the doctors are promoting that. Yes. It's that what, but I think if we take your word, what the doctors have, have recently said is it makes no difference if they're autistic. And, well, and I'd say, well, in terms of the pathway to trans identity and the capacities to cope with adversities and the idea that I, I hope to be more relational if I'm a woman or a man, you see, than what I am, uh, all those things are really relevant. And the idea that the mental health professional says, well, okay, you note that they're autistic, but what can you do about that anyway? And you, there's no medicine that cures autism. So just go ahead and change their sex. Maybe they'll be happier. Maybe they'll be happier. Where's the evidence-based medicine that they're happier? You see, yeah. autistic yeah. people have a three times the suicide rate than non-autistic people. Yeah. So- uh we're confused, you know, are they kill, killing themselves because they're trans or are they and they're unhappy because they're trans or are they killing themselves because they're autistic? And we're confusing the whole idea. I think the thing we can, we're out of time and, and I don't want to hold you up too much, but I think we can say that very clearly to me that the science is not settled, that there needs to be a lot more thought and consideration, probably better informed consent. Uh, I won't get into whether or not laws should be passed, which are beginning to be passed in some states, preventing these kinds of surgical interventions on minors anyway. But I do want to ask one more question, if I could, uh, for the listeners. If a child of one of my listeners uh, comes to their parent and says, you know, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm, a, I'm, I'm not really a boy, I'm a girl, what should a parent do? How should they approach that, that issue? Because that's got to be a very difficult circumstance for any parent well i i think um this could be the subject of another hour uh, yes i want you to know so whatever i could say now is going to be a very glib uh inadequate response the answer to your question should be thought of as a process and not a thing to do at the moment Right. It is a discussion of helping the child deal with reality and and recognizing that there's something that's attractive about the opposite sex to them. And what is that? What what is it about, say, for a little boy wants to be a little girl? Uh, what is it about a little girl that is attractive to you? And and have you considered the possibility that you could become that without changing without being a girl, but you could behave or be interested and be capable of that. See, I think if, if you envy, if you, if you envy women's reproductive capacity to be pregnant and bear a child, right? As you grow up, 
that envy can be transformed if you're in, smart enough and, and responsible enough. You could be you could be, be as close to that as humanly possible as a male, and that is you become an obstetrician. <laughs> well, you know, I'd really like to um, have another conversation with you and get into some of these things uh, that you were just addressing more deeply. Um, I do appreciate that you've had the courage to actually stand against this uh, tsunami of, um, uh, I'm sure you've been vi- uh, suffered vituperation and so forth, just because you're saying let's <laughs> use evidence instead of uh, social justice issues. So let me ask, what next for uh, Dr. Stephen B. Levine? There is going to be, uh, on June, uh, June 15th, there are 67 people from 15 countries meeting in Helsinki to talk about uh, how do we think about psychotherapy, how do we approach this problem psychotherapeutically. I think that's really important, and and I hope if uh, there's some conclusions, you'll let me know what they are, and perhaps we can talk again. Yep, very good. Thank you, Dr. Levine. I appreciate it. Um, I appreciate it, too. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. Discover all the good work of the Center on Human Exceptionalism by visiting discovery.org slash human. We can only do this work speaking on behalf of human life, human thriving, and our exceptional place in this world and our cosmos with your support. We invite you to make a one-time gift today and to consider starting a monthly gift to support the Center on Human Exceptionalism and this show. Wherever you're listening to Humanize, please take a moment to rate and review the show. You matter. Your actions matter. Be bold, be exceptional, and be back soon.